Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel of the changing culture. I'm Eric Sintel, and as I mentioned in our last episode, um, I am working on lining up some more interviews so you don't just have to hear me talk all the time. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to talk some more. So um, in this episode, I want to share some thoughts about faith versus works and salvation. So this is something that Christians have debated and thought about for centuries, thousands of years, something that's always kind of bothered me in a way um, because it gets very confusing, as I'll explain. At least for me, it gets very confusing. Um, And people sometimes try to make it uh, very simple. Well, you just just believe, you just have faith. Um, But as I'll describe in the rest of this episode, um, in practice, that doesn't seem to play out. Um, So in other words, the people who say it's just believe, just have faith, are also the same people that tend to be very concerned about morality and ethics and how people behave or don't behave. Um, And so it's very strange, you know, to have this faith that is rooted in belief. And yet, at the same time, there's a lot of discussion and concern about behavior within that faith community or within that religion. Um, And you see the same exact thing in the Bible. You know, that's why it's really perplexing, really confusing, and why Christians have debated it and discussed it for thousands of years. Because the Bible, depending on which passage you read, seems to say you're saved by faith alone or you're saved by good works. Um, And you can see in certain passages where Paul and James and, you know, the other scriptures are saying, uh, well, you're saved by faith, and because you're saved by faith, you'll do good works. Like you'll want to do these good works. You're being transformed by the Spirit, transformed by God and Jesus, and you are becoming the kind of person who wants to do these things and will do these things, um, and will do them with the right motivation. But you can see how that then it's just like one step from that to am I doing these good works because I'm internally transformed by the Spirit or because I've just been socialized to do this kind of stuff, um, because I've been taught to do this kind of stuff, or um, because I'm anxiously trying to prove my salvation. Um, you know, that's something that I learned about with the Puritans as an English major. Um, we're reading early American literature, including literature by the Puritans, and You know, we were learning about how the Puritans were extremely anxious people um, because they believed that you were predestined to go to heaven or to go to hell. Um, You were predestined to be one of God's elect or chosen, or you were predestined to not be elect or chosen by God. How do you know which you are and which you aren't? Well, if you're elect, you're going to be very successful um, financially and materially. You're going to be very productive helpful member of society. So what did the Puritans do? They worked themselves to the bone trying to be financially, um, materially successful and productive members of society. And and they, of course, very much policed behavior and morality and ethics. And um, and so that's where why we have this so-called Puritan work ethic, you know, because the Pur- Puritans, particularly those who came to America, were so anxious about proving their election, their salvation, um, that they that they worked really hard to try to prove it and earn it. Um, and and so you can see how 
you know, faith versus works is really a conundrum. Um, it really, you know, get, it twists my brain into knots trying to kind of parse it and figure it out. And the Bible is very little help, believe it or not. Um, and I can, you know, imagine, you know, heads exploding as you're listening to this right now. But hear me out here. Um, depending on which passage of the Bible you're reading, it seems explicitly clear, very clear, that we're saved by faith alone. And to be clear, I believe that. As a person of faith, I believe we are saved for everlasting life through faith alone. And yet, this tension between faith and good works still bothers me. And it bothers me in part because I think it bothered the Apostle Paul, it bothered James, um, it bothered the authors of the biblical text, the New Testament. Um, because you see, depending on which passage you're reading, it's either all faith or it's also works. Um, so let me just pull out a couple examples here. Um, so the Apostle Paul wrote um, in Romans 5, we have been justified through faith. He also wrote in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then in Ephesians 2 uh, verse 9, he writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, I mean, we have multiple passages from Paul here, and we could pull out several more, where he is very clearly saying, we are justified, we are saved by faith. All you got to do is believe in God, and you know, believe that he raised Jesus from the dead, that the resurrection is real for Jesus, and it will be real for us. Um, and, you know, I think we sometimes forget, you know, the ancient Jewish people, they disagreed about the resurrection. You know, I believe it was the Sadducees who just did not believe it was a thing. Um, and they come to Jesus and ask him, you know, this woman was married to seven men in succession and each one died. Which one will be her husband at the resurrection? And it was meant to, to be a rhetorical question of, you know, making the resurrection seem really absurd. And if I recall correctly, Jesus answered, you know, it doesn't matter. We're not going to have that kind of thing in heaven. You know, we're, when we're resurrected and we're in heaven with God, you know, we're not going to have to worry about husbands and wives. We're all going to be, you know, one big family, so to speak. Um, and so, but that, that conversation, if nothing else, illustrates, you know, in Jesus's time, it, the resurrection of the body um, was not something that they all agreed on or that was taken for granted. Um, and so, you know, Paul writing in Romans, you know, we have been justified through faith. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know, that he's the son of God, that the resurrection is real. If you just believe that, then you'll be saved. Um, for it's by grace that you've been saved, he adds in Ephesians, um, not by works. And yet, in other large swaths of Paul's writing, you hear him or read him telling people, particularly these pagan Gentiles um, who had lived previously a very non-Jewish ethic or uh, lifestyle or morality, you got to stop acting like pagans. <laughs> you, you know, he writes extensively about the godly, moral, correct way to live. Um, and unsurprisingly, it aligns with you know, a first century, second century Jewish ethic or morality. Um, so Paul writes, for example, also in Romans chapter eight, 
We have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You know, the misdeeds of the body. You know, so in Romans 5, in Romans 10, verse 9, you know, it's just faith and confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then in Romans 8, it's, you know, don't live by the flesh or you're going to die. Um, live by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So in other words, stop you know, living the way you were before, stop living this certain way. And that sounds very reasonable, especially to us as 21st century Christians who have been shaped by, you know, a 2000 plus year tradition that in includes a certain morality, certain ethics. But does this mean, Paul, that I need to get circumcised? Um, because that's a marker of the Jewish faith. Um, and is that what I need to do to show that I believe in my heart um, that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do I need to stop eating pork? Um, do I need to start eating a more kosher diet? Do I need to, um, you know, do I need to not be a soldier anymore? That's that was the job I had, and now you know I'm following this religion that espouses nonviolence. Um, do I need to stop being a soldier then? You know, so it gets messy when you start thinking about the actual kinds of conflicts uh, you know that people were experiencing in the time of Paul um, as they're trying to navigate you know what does becoming a Christian mean you know you see throughout the New Testament Paul and the other disciples and apostles debating you know do we require that people get circumcised or not um, do we require that they eat you know follow the Jewish dietary laws or not you know and so when we think about well, yeah, put to death the fleshly things. You know, we think about kind of the bigger sins, quote unquote, you know, adultery, uh, murder, theft, um, things like that. But if, what if we're talking about things like dietary laws or circumcision or even just, you know, different opinions about what is moral or ethical in, in a given context or situation? So in Romans 8, again, Paul is saying, put to death the misdeeds of your body. So in other words, yeah, you're saved by faith, but your, your works and your actions matter too. Put to death, in Colossians 3, verse 5, he adds, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then in Colossians, or I'm sorry, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then there's the book of James, uh, which I think just smacks us aside the head and says, you know, faith um, and grace are not uh, actionless or powerless. Show me your faith. This is James chapter 2. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, and so James there is seemingly saying belief by itself isn't enough. It's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't put that belief into action. Show you, I will show you my faith by my deeds. And so, you know, the Puritans struggled with this. I struggle with this. I think a lot of Christians struggle with this. And the Bible doesn't really provide us clear guidance or help. That's why we're struggling, struggling with it in the first place. You know, depending on which passage you're reading, the New Testament tells us we're saved by faith alone and we are saved by how we live. 
So how do we make sense of this apparent contradiction of faith and good works in the New Testament? Well, most Christians will say that one must not be truly saved if one lives immorally and eschews good works or does not do good works. So if you're saved, the logic goes, you're transformed by the Holy Spirit. And if you're transformed, then you want to live morally and perform good works. Therefore, you live morally and perform good works. But then, you know, we quickly end up back where the Puritans were. Um, you know, so that, that logic begs some questions. You know, so again, that logic, if you're saved, you're transformed internally by the Holy Spirit. If you're transformed, then you want to live morally and perform good works. Therefore, you live morally and perform good works. So am I living morally and doing good works because I've been internally transformed by the Spirit? Or have I simply been socialized to live this way? And how can I know the difference? You know, it's really hard to step outside of yourself and examine your own motivations and examine, you know, why you're doing something. Um, and to really know for sure, you know, which it is. Um, or am I just simply anxiously trying to prove my salvation by doing all these good works and volunteering for everything at church and, you know, doing, um, you know, things for the ministries for the poor and things like that. Um, and then lastly, you know, if salvation does come solely from faith in Jesus, then why are Christians so concerned about behavior? You know, why was Paul so insistent that these pagan Gentiles need to stop living and acting like pagan Gentiles and start acting more like Jews? Not in the dietary laws, not in circumcision, but in their morality and ethics regarding their relationships and their work and, you know, greed and drunkenness and sexual morality and lust and things like that. Um, and so intuitively, you know, we know that we should treat others with respect and kindness, that some things like lust and greed and drunkenness and uh, sexual immorality and things like that, some things harm us, other things benefit us. So intuitively, we understand that we should treat people a certain way um, and we should live a certain way. And we experience, of course, the relational destruction and the consequences of harming other people or living a life of debauchery um, and, or living very selfishly and egocentrically. We So intuitively and experientially, we have good reasons for why our behavior matters, our choices matter. But one does not need to be a Christian or spiritual or religious to possess those intuitions and those experiences and therefore live a moral good life. Um, we can all think of people who weren't Christians, aren't Christians. You know, think about Gandhi. Think about famous people like that. Um, but also think about just people you know who you probably not a Christian if you ask them. Or if you ask them, they might say, well, yeah, I guess I'm Christian, you know, right? You know, yeah, I'm a Christian. But were they really, you know, because are they just saying that because it's more of like a cultural label to them? So we know of prominent people like Gandhi, as well as, you know, people just in our life experience that um, were very good moral people and yet weren't Christians. So perhaps then belief is the key um, because you don't need to be a Christian to recognize that you need to treat people a certain way and that some things are harmful, some things are beneficial. So don't do certain things, do do those beneficial things. You don't need to be a Christian to live that way. And so maybe the key then 
is the belief in Jesus. Except, <laughs> one could believe Jesus is God's son and died for our salvation and attend church every Sunday while also being a terrible person who lives a very immoral life. Um, or a person could commit all the sins, you know, just live whatever they want to do for their whole life, and then confess Jesus as Lord on their deathbed, just in case. Um, so in those kinds of circumstances, you know, they really seem to run counter to large sections of Paul's letters, as well as the admonitions of the book of James. You know, you could almost imagine James has exactly those kinds of people in mind when he says, you believe? Good. So do the demons. Um, and so I've been thinking about this uh, recently. It's something I've always kind of thought about and wondered about, but I've been thinking about it more intentionally recently. And I decided to do some research and try to investigate a little bit and see if I could get some clarity. And so I decided to look at John 3.16 more specifically. Um, so, of course, John 3.16 is one of the most most well-known, most memorized verses in the Bible, um, maybe the best known, the most memorized, um, because it summarizes Christianity. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. You know, so God loves us. God gave Jesus so that those who believe in him can have everlasting life. Therefore, believe in Jesus. Um, it, it's so elegant in its simplicity that it, it, that it captures, it's like E equals MC squared, you know, it, that equation from Einstein summarizes the universe. <laughs> and, and John 3.16 summarizes the Christian faith, and, uh, and it's just so elegant and so powerful. So it's little surprise we use it when we're evangelizing, we use it when we're explaining our faith, and we certainly teach it to our children at early ages. We reinforce it continuously as they grow and age into different children's ministries and youth ministries. But what does that word believe mean? You know, whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal or everlasting life. You know, what, what does that word believe mean in the ancient Greek? You know, we're reading an English translation of a Latin translation of a Greek translation, you know. And so uh, what, is, what was the ancient Greek that uh, the authors of the New Testament and the Gospel of John used to uh, say believe, believe in Jesus. You know, if that ancient Greek word carries layers of meaning and layers of significance, or maybe different meanings, they get lost in the English word believe, then maybe I could get some insight or a different perspective on this conflict of faith and works. And I was not disappointed. The Greek word for believe in John 3.16 and elsewhere in the New Testament is pisteo, which derives from belief or pistis. And the word pistis stems from patho, to persuade or be persuaded. I probably just completely mispronounced those three Greek words, but just go with me here. You know, so believe in John 3.16 is pisteo, which derives from belief or pistis, which stems from patho, or to persuade or be persuaded of something. So the Greek word pisteo, believe, carries connotations of deep trust and confidence. It means to believe, but it also means to entrust, to place our trust in something, to have confidence in something, to be persuaded of something 
or convinced of something in a deep way to have a conviction about that thing. Um, and so John 3.16 does not say believe in Jesus to have everlasting life. It says trust in Jesus and have confidence in him to have everlasting life. And thinking about this in terms of the resurrection and this first century context in which uh, people in Jerusalem and Palestine, the ancient Jews, did not agree as a group on the resurrection. They had diverse views and opinions about the resurrection. Is this a thing or not? Will we be resurrected bodily or will it be a spiritual resurrection or is there just no resurrection at all? Um, and so to have confidence in Jesus Christ was to have confidence in everlasting life, in the resurrection. When he came out of the grave, that happened. That, that's not just a story that his followers are telling. That's not a, uh, a fabricated event, but we believe that happened. We trust that happened. We have confidence that that happened, so much so that we're willing to um, follow the way of Jesus. We're willing to follow his teachings. Okay, so what is the difference between belief and trust? Well, I think that um, an analogy could be helpful. You know, so I'm really afraid of heights. Um, I don't let it stop me from doing roller coasters and climbing tall things and going up in tall buildings. Like, it's not debilitating, but it's not a comfortable experience for me most of the time when I'm, you know, up really high. Um, and it's actually not the being up high, it's the falling, <laughs> you know? So it's not that I look down and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so high and I'm, you know, I'm way up high and I'm now disoriented. It's, I can be, you know, standing um, on very, something very solid, but like in my brain, there's this weird fear that whatever I'm standing on is going to collapse. You know, I'm not going to, so I, I guess you could say I don't have any trust or belief or confidence in what I'm standing on when I'm up high. So I have this fear of heights. And so I think this analogy is useful. You know, say that you're about to go skydiving and your instructor asks you, do you believe this parachute will work? Sure, I think it will work um, intellectually. I have no reason not to. Um, okay, then your instructor asks, do you believe in me? Well, you're the instructor. You know what you're doing. Okay, let's jump. Uh, wait a minute, not so fast there. Um, and the instructor says, it's okay, I'll be jumping with you. Wait, but what if I mess up and I turn our descent into a death spiral? You know, so I can imagine myself, you know, trying to uh, skydive and get into that door and doing something inadvertently to cause a problem. And, you know, and so then I would have to believe in my instructor, trust in my instructor, have confidence in my instructor to correct that error and to save my life. Um, so... You know, what if I mess up? I would ask my instructor. Um, and the instructor replies, well, I'll make it right and I'll save your life. And then I say, or you say, I'm sure you'll try, but I'm gonna sit down over here just to be safe. See you on the ground. And the instructor asks, well, don't you trust me? Nope, <laughs> apparently not. Uh, I thought I did. I believe that the parachute will work. I believe you, the instructor, know what you're doing and will keep me safe. Um, but evidently, I don't trust that. I don't have confidence in that or else I'd jump out of the plane with you. Um, so maybe it's just my fear of heights, but I don't think you can trust the parachute or the skydiving instructor unless you're jumping. 
You, know, you can't say you trust them unless you act in a way that demonstrates that trust. Um, so there's a difference between mentally agreeing that this parachute will work and trusting it with your versus trusting it with your life. There's a difference between mentally believing a skydive skydiving instructor will save your life no matter what versus trusting him or her to actually do so if needed. Um, and now, you know, put yourself in the sandals of the disciples. You know, they believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they did not fully trust Jesus and have confidence in Jesus until after the resurrection. You know, they thought Jesus was the long-awaited political military Messiah who was going to vanquish the oppressor Rome and expel the religious leaders uh, who were corrupt and restore Israel to preeminence and establish it as this new theological God-ordained superpower. Then Rome crucified Jesus. So the disciples scattered and they hid in fear. You know, Peter infamously denied Jesus three times to save his own skin, to keep from being recognized as a follower of Jesus and one of his closest disciples, and to keep from maybe being the victim of mob violence or being turned over to the authorities. Um, so they, the disciples believed, they thought he was this political messiah. And then Rome crucified him and shattered that idea proved that idea to be false. Um, and so they scattered and hid, and Peter denied him. They thought Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't trust Jesus. They, in particular, didn't trust Jesus when he told them he would die and rise again. And so if you look at Mark um, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right? So Peter was like, why are you saying this? This isn't true. You're the Messiah. You know, or just right before this, right before this scene, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter said, I say you're the Messiah. I think you're the, the anointed one, the chosen one of God um, and uh, God's son. And yet when Jesus began to explain what that actually meant, what that truly meant, not just what Paul or Peter and other disciples thought it meant, Peter rebuked him because he didn't believe it. He, he didn't trust in Jesus. He didn't have confidence in Jesus no matter what. So they didn't, the disciples, I would argue, did not trust Jesus when their entire lives fell apart. You know, they were arguing with each other about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, after Jesus leads this massive rebellion of the people against Rome and uh, and against the corrupt religious leaders and overturns it all and wreaks vengeance upon them. You know, who's going to be his right-hand man? You know, who's going to be in uh, given positions of power and authority uh, in this new government that the Messiah will establish? You know, so they had invested their entire lives and all of their hopes and a purpose and years of their lives into this movement. And then when it all fell apart at the crucifixion, when their hopes dis disintegrated, when their purpose evaporated, when years of their lives seemed wasted, when their very lives were threatened, um, because if you know they get captured by the authorities, they could be crucified too. When all that happened, they didn't trust Jesus. And to be fair, they had plenty of reason to be terrified and devastated. You know, it was only natural for them to wonder, 
are we going to survive this? Are we going to avoid the authorities? Are we going to, going to avoid mob violence? And are we going to live through this? Um, and if we do, then what are we going to do for work? What are we, how are we going to make a living? You know, who's going to hire us to do anything? Um, how are we ever going to live down following this failed Messiah? And, you know, I would go so far as to say, uh, to draw parallels to the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. I would say the disciples in those three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection failed the test of Job and they ignored the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. So Job, of course, suffers unimaginable tragedy that could drive many people away from their faith entirely, and yet Job insists that he will see his Redeemer. When one of his friends suggests that, you know, Job, God just doesn't care that much about humans, and that's why we suffer, like, we're just like worms to him, he's just, we just don't really enter his mind, especially our pain or suffering, Job rebukes him in extremely strong terms. So, Job trusted confidently in God, even when everything around him had fallen apart, he lost it all. Um, the author of Ecclesiastes you know, essentially wonders, why are we here, especially if we're just going to die one day? Everything is meaningless. And nonetheless, the author of Ecclesiastes concludes that we should revere God regardless, for he will judge us in our deeds. So this author puts trust and confidence in God. So on the runway, before the plane takes off, the disciples thought Jesus was their Lord and Savior. They believed he, would, he was the Messiah, that he would deliver them no matter what, that they followed him. And at the plane door, they looked into that blue sky rushing beneath the plane, heard the roar of the engines, and pulled back. So, this podcast and everything I've said began with me wondering if the word believe meant something more in the ancient Greek than it does in the modern English. And I believe, pun intended, that I found that it does in fact mean much more than believe. In the ancient Greek, believe does not only mean believe, it also means deeply trust, have confidence in. And so when I think of believe in John 3.16 as deeply trust, you know, when I sub out those words, then I begin to, in my mind, reconcile faith and works. So if we trust Jesus with our lives, we don't just believe in him, even demons do that, but we trust him, we put confidence in him, then we do not only mentally agree that Jesus is God's son and died for our salvation, we also trust in the grace and mercy of Jesus. And we also trust what Jesus tells us about how to be human and how to follow God. So going with that uh, skydiving analogy just a little further, we trust Jesus so much. We have so much confidence in Jesus. We strap on the parachute like he shows us and we leap. And we trust him to deliver us to solid ground despite our flaws, our errors, or our sins. So everlasting life comes from faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus means trusting him in good times and in bad, to cover our sins and to instruct our living, to be with us now, and to await our future arrival. Thank you as always for listening. I hope this was helpful. I hope this was thought-provoking. Um, and I hope you know someone that you want to share this with. And if so, please do. Thank you and God bless.